Amen. It's good to be with you this morning and back together in the Word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn your Bibles there if you'd like. For those with little ones and you want to be in children's church up through grade 3, they can be there now. You can dismiss them into the foyer. It's a joy to be get together today. Fun day ahead with our outreach to Christmas parade. So lots of fun on the docket. Opportunities to spread the gospel, opportunities to minister to one another, and so I'm looking forward to that. The website Job Mob posted a contest by a blog writer named Scott Adams on job requirements uh, with the thesis, have people write their own job descriptions, and he said that he thought that would be a lot funnier than having HR do it. Well, I was reading through them, and this really struck my funny bone, and I, I really like the, um, I really like the, the uh, social media site Babylon Bee, the satire site. I read it all the time. I, I think it's hysterical. Nobody's safe there, and this is a lot like that, so I think it's why it, it struck my funny bone. You'll see why I'm going through this in just a second, but here's some of the, there was a lot of submissions, so job descriptions written by the person in the job to describe their job in a single sentence. A tax accountant wrote, take numbers on pieces of paper, rearrange them, and put them on different pieces of paper. Physics professor, learn laws created long ago so that I can tell engineers why I'm smarter than they are while complaining how it's a travesty that they get paid more than I do. Fireworks stand manager, show you innovative ways to burn money in the spirit of patriotism. TV ad director, make corporate propaganda feel like folksy truism. Antiques dealer, manage waste recycling, promotion, and sales. Chief accountant, provide arcane information on a need-to-know basis. Consumer products tester, guide clients through the process of setting their products on fire. A B-52 bomber pilot, manage urban renewal and pest control. Lifeguard, it's one of my favorites, ensure that stupid people stay in the gene pool. X-ray technician, take pictures of the unlucky and the stupid. Quality assurance tester, make people feel bad about their work. Assistant horse trainer, clean up after an animal that makes more money than you in a year. Technical writer, write words that no one wants to read. IT security, make sure nothing ever happens. Corporate attorney, take a simple two-way promise and turn it into several complicated one-way promises which neither side can understand or hope to fulfill. My personal favorite, building inspector, helping projects take more time and cost far more than was estimated. Those are job descriptions from the job holders. They ring true to our ears, don't they? Uh, they are, uh, I think they apply really because we've been making our way through chapter six, or chapter six of the letter of 2 Corinthians. We've titled it The Highs and Lows of Ministry. In some ways, uh, the things that we've been seeing in this passage include a job description, don't they? And perhaps some of the requirements for those who work together with him, as we saw in verse 1, 
Let's read our passage together this morning, picking up in verse 1. We'll read through verse 10. And working together with them, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, for he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but... In everything, verse 4, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, and distresses. Verse 5, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Verse 6, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Verse 7, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Verse 8, by glory and dishonor by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. In our passage, the Apostle Paul describes the experiences and responses and ironies of all who have the ministry of reconciliation, which is every single believer. And the reason for listing these things is really to show the church that he is commended to them. It's a live letter written from Paul to the church in the first century, convincing them that he is committed to them for the things that he's done and, then, and the things he's endured. And so by patiently enduring what he's experienced, how he's responded, uh, keeping his balance in the ironies of ministry, And he commends himself to them by showing them those things. And as a secondary but equally important emphasis, he teaches us how he keeps his balance in the highs and lows and by emulation how we can do that as well. So that's where we come in as we begin to study the word and understand then how it applies to us. So uh, the thing that really overshadows everything is the words in much endurance. So patient endurance in whatever comes. We saw that early in verse 4. Really took us through the first nine experiences in hardship And it takes us through the next responses in hardship, which we saw begin in verse 6. And it's going to take him through the nine ironies of ministry. So he kind of splits these up in sets of nine here. And it goes on through verse 10. And then finally, this is the foundation for his consistent admonition to them, which begins in verse 11, on to the end of the chapter. So he's, in much endurance, he's going to give them instruction for living. And we saw, don't be yoked together with unbelievers and all those things that we see as we pick up in verse 12. So on the experiences side, we see very simply that the minister of God is commended then by, and this is you, as you minister to that class or to the small group or to the uh, whatever it is, wherever it is the Lord has you ministering, you're commended. In other words, you, the Lord has said then through these passages that what you're doing is correct. If, if uh, you have an ability to endure the hostility and hardship that can come in the course of ministry, and those may come as a result of circumstances or from uh, enemies of the truth, but either way the minister remains faithful, that's the experience's side. And Paul says he endures in hostility and in hardship. And on the response side, which is we started that last time we were together a couple weeks ago, uh, we see that the minister of God is commended by never wavering from those responses to hardship. And then on the irony side, which we'll see later, is, is the minister understands that uh, the ministry of reconciliation, the proclamation of the word of God, uh, is going to, as an ambassador of Jesus, is going to lead to some extreme reactions, both on the positive and on the negative side. And we're going to study that very soon. But, but the commendation is the same. So the minister endures to all of them. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter what the difficulty is, what the attack is, the paradox he endures. And that's how you commend yourself. So 
back uh, to the order of our passage, these nine responses, which we started two weeks ago. We had a break in between for Thanksgiving. So verses 6 and 7 are all choices of response. We can choose to respond differently, but the more our responses look like this, the more we're assured of our sanctification. So just so it's, it's clear to you, this is what it looks like to be mature. Uh, these responses have obviously have to do with maturity. So as we've said many times before, they're going to be true in the life of someone who is transformed, somebody who's come to faith in Christ. These things will be true, and their manifestation then is a matter of degree. So to the greater degree, these manifestations of responses, the greater degree of, of uh, maturity that you have. So we looked at the first six, and we'll just barely touch them this morning because you can catch up on these very important response habits from last time if you missed them. But spiritual maturity in response is that mark of a growing believer, and spiritual maturity has its fruit. And the first one we uh, came to instructs us that we should be dealing with whatever comes along in purity. Look there in verse 6. So impurity, that's that first response Paul says, very comprehensive. It's the first thing he puts down. And it's at the top of the response list because it's very so very important. And it colors really everything that we do. Uh, purity in life, conduct and purity, response and purity. Your life is a pattern. Uh, your life pattern is a pattern of purity. That's your response. As you deal with life, uh, keeping your life unstained from sinfulness, patterns of behavior that are shameful. Uh, I was reading a blog about this message that we, had, uh, we, did, we did many uh, weeks ago. And, and it said it's like wearing a really nice outfit and you're coming in somewhere where you know that you can get a stain on it, and you're extra careful to make sure you don't. That's the idea. That's a perfect illustration of that. Wearing a brand new jacket and a tie, wearing a brand new dress or, or some kind of blazer that you don't want to get anything on, you've got to go into the kitchen and do some cooking. You're going to make sure that you don't get anything splashed on it. And that's exactly the pattern of life we want to have as it deals with spirituality. So when you're thinking about purity, you're thinking about how to protect yourself from the stain of sinfulness. And a pattern of doing that. And that's a tough battle and one that you engage in every day of this defiled world. And the second one was in knowledge. And that firm form is to come to know or to arrive at understanding. And it is equally coloring everything we do. Paul lists knowledge early in our response because it colors everything else as well. In fact, we could say that knowledge is reliant on pure living. And the reason why I say that, I was thinking about this this week. It is nearly impossible to have the kind of knowledge from the Word of God that you need to deal with the ups and downs of life, let alone the rigors of ministry, if you're walking in impurity. If you're walking in sinfulness on a regular pattern of behavior in your life, then uh, because that pattern of impurity, that's going to be grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit. And as you know, the, the things of the Word of God are spiritually discerned, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. Things of God are spiritually discerned, but if you're quenching the Spirit, if you're grieving the Spirit, and, and you've certainly seen this principle at work in the lives of people you know who are walking in sinful patterns and then try to quote the Word of God to you, and they have no idea what they're talking about, and they have no idea how to apply it, and their application is all wrong, and you're like, what? That, that's not what that means. But that's what happens because a pattern of impurity short-circuits the, the understanding of knowledge that you should have of the Word of God, and its application. And so that makes sense. So Paul lists the two at the top. Knowledge can be an essential base of response for, for a life that is patterned on purity and, and fights that battle daily. And Paul knows that he has been able to deal with the rigors of ministry and the hardships and the sufferings because he knows what the Word of God says about those things and back up, and he has tried to live a pattern of life in purity. So he's able to understand the Word of God and apply that Word of God in his life. So those things are very important. And the third one was patience. Still verse 6, another fruit of the Spirit. It's also translated forbearance or long-suffering. And we saw that most of the examples from the Word of God have to do with a response to people who generate the hardship. 
So patience in response to people, people who test your patience. Paul had to deal with all kinds of people connected to all kinds of unique situations. And Paul commends himself to the church because in all of it, he was patient, patient because he knew that he had ministry among them. And uh, that was that ministry of reconciliation. And it's likely that he always remembered the patience God showed to him. And you then should be motivated by the fact that you are the recipient of the patience of God, and you came to faith as a result of that patience. And so that's patience you show, and that's a patience is in your response. Otherwise, you've forgotten from where you've been delivered, and you've forgotten the patience of God that was shown to you. And then that next one was in kindness. Translates as gracious just once, and virtuous, and good, and mild, and pleasant. Root word is what is fitting. Kindness is what is fitting. And so The essence of the word has to do with how Paul responded to people. No matter if they were unkind to him, he was kind to them. And this is, as we saw last time, this is a thought process in place that responds to people with appropriate words or actions that fit the situation. Of course, in the sense of what is upright and righteous. And we know that God uh, expects uh, that from us because we have all been the recipients of God's kindness like we saw last time from Romans chapter 2 verse 4. We saw... We saw this, we saw, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God, what, leads you to repentance? So again, patience and kindness of God are both, your beneficiaries of both of those things. So it's, it seems normal to us then, and not, not groundbreaking, that the Lord expects those responses from you. I'll say it again, the Lord expects those responses from you. Patience, kindness, purity, knowledge. Those are responses that will be true. They are true in your life as a result of being a believer. And to the extent that you show them as responses, that is the extent of maturity that you've achieved. Okay? And I think that we could say that God has endured in kindness, wouldn't you say, for you? And he did it to lead you to what? Repentance. Right? God's kindness is designed to cause people to turn from sin to him. That's the definition of repentance. It's designed to cause men who are filled with evil to long for God and God's goodness. And and that's what Paul wants, and that's what we want. And then the next one was in the Holy Spirit. We saw that, right? Look at again at verse 6. Just lets them know that he's not picking and he's not choosing. And as we said before, you can't be in the Holy Spirit if you're grieving him by not walking in purity. So again, the very first one colors every single one after that. You're not going to have correct knowledge or its application if you're not walking in purity. There's no way you're going to respond in patience and kindness to people. Why? Because if you're not walking in purity, there's no way you're going to have a a, a spirit-controlled response. In the Spirit is very comprehensive. It's where Paul finds his power. And all the rest of the desires and the gifts and the fruit, these are all pursued to the full. And we noted last time that it shouldn't surprise us that the benefit of dwelling in the Word of Christ should be the same as the benefit of being filled with the Spirit of Christ, right? And we looked at that, com- uh, that comparison last time. We won't do it again. This is a choice you make, see? So don't say, Lord, I want to be more kind. I want to be more patient. I want to have more peace. And then ignore the pathway for those things to be in control, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is just very basic stuff. It's not groundbreaking, okay? It's just very fundamental. Then the next one was in genuine love. Look there in your copy of God's Word. Genuine love, compound word, an adjective. Uh, it just means uh, ah, which is the negative, and hypocritomai, which is where we get our word hypocrisy. So without hypocrisy. So the idea is an affectionate, brotherly love. That's a response from you and your first response, see, to the extent that you're growing in maturity, uh, uh, an affectionate, brotherly love, that is sincere, a decision to love, that's love of the will, towards other people. Paul loved the way God taught him to love. We love the way we were taught to love. In 1 John 4.10, we see this. We see, in this is love. So we're going to get a definition. This is love. 
Not that we love God, but what? He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So a self-sacrificing love for one another and expressed towards God. See, He loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction, that's what that word means, for our sins. And then in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, what? So we're going to get another definition, aren't we? That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So you get both of those, I think, folded in, and these are very easy to put together. We are to patiently endure in both expressions, because I don't think the text allows us to differentiate between the two, see? So the kind of love that God showed us is the kind of response love that we, we want to show to one another, and then the kind of love that we're supposed to show God is one that, where we keep, what? His commandments, see? So it's a sincere and devoted love expressed to God by a lifestyle pattern of obeying his commands, and it's a sincere and devoted love expressed to all his, his friends and all the people that didn't like him. Paul did this, and, and, and his church, and people, whether they loved him or not, or whether they had turned on him, so he loved them sincerely. And this is not a charade. That's what it means by without hypocrisy. See, this is not a pretense. It's not a public image, okay? You make sure that you put on the fake smile, see, the artificial mask, it's the Lord's love reflected through him. That's a love of the will. It's one that you understand defined for you by how the Lord loved you, giving Christ as a sacrifice, a satisfaction, a propitiation for your sins. It's a love expressed towards God by obeying his commands. See, this is genuine love expressed to other people. The Lord expects that it's a requirement from him to you. Okay? There's no way to wiggle out of this. These things are Marks of a mature believer. That's what it looks like. He loved them enough to give his life, see? And Paul said again and again that it was his joy to offer his life for the purposes of the gospel, and that's how he really felt from the heart. And that's a decision based on the power of the Holy Spirit in you to fulfill it. And that's how Paul was commended to them because of his enduring uh, his enduring. Love, uh, his enduring response in love, and love, and you are commended if you endure in love. And I think we can safely say that this, you know, this might be the greatest response of all, right? Because we know that that's what's going to endure to the end. The greatest, greatest of these, what does 1 Corinthians 13 say? And the greatest of these is love, okay? Now look at verse 7, if you would. Look at verse 7. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Now, when you read these three by themselves, you can see they could stand alone. And you could do a series just from them in a three-part series. But as we're going to do this today, all three of them, we will definitely come away enriched by the enduring qualities of Paul's responses to the challenges of ministry, but we're gonna, which is going to provide a model, of course, for, for us to follow. And if we are responding as a life pattern in the first six, that will provide a secure base on which these last three will be found. Let's look at the first one. It's in the word of truth. The word is referring to an act of speaking. So when you begin to look at that, that phrase, understand that's the act of speaking something, something, and that something is what? Truth, which has to do with what is objectively true. Aletheus, that's it's a noun, what's objectively true. And now it isn't hard to figure out uh, what he's talking about here when we use the Bible to explain the Bible. So we don't have to guess what in the word of truth means. So first of all, this isn't some charismatic utterance that the Lord miraculously gives to someone, okay? 
which charismatic brethren like to pull this out and say, okay, see that word of truth. That's what we're supposed to endure in the word of truth. It isn't what it's talking about, okay? If you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, it uses the exact same wording, and then it gives us a definition. So we don't have to guess about what we're talking about. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Paul says as he's giving this same instruction to the Colossians, it says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So again, we see very common responses, don't we? Uh, and the love you have for all the saints, same type of love we've been talking about. And, and uh, Paul says, we give thanks to God because we hear about this. We heard of your faith in Christ, so you were changed. And then one of the, th- the things that is manifested in the change when you come to faith is you begin to, uh, you begin to respond in love for all the saints. And then verse 5 says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard, now mark this, in the word of truth. There's our, there's our phrase. And then this, the gospel. So what is it? What's the word of truth? You're enduring in the word of truth, and what is the word of truth? It's the gospel, okay? Um, and then verse, verse 6 says, which has come to you? What, what came to you? Well, the word of truth, the gospel came. Where else did it come? Just, just in case you're unsure about whether or not we've got the right understanding. Paul says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying also, always for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the word of truth came. We know that the Holy Spirit was involved in making it clear, and it continues to bear fruit, right? And the initial fruit in the word of truth is what? Salvation. The initial fruit in the word of truth is salvation because it's the gospel, and the fruit of the gospel is salvation. So when we go to the parade time tonight, uh, today, we're going to hand out tracts, and we're going to hand out the Bible, and we're, we're, our desire is for it to bear fruit because it is the word of truth, and the first fruit it's going to bear is salvation, in the life of those who hear and understand. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit will be involved in making the track clear to them so that they can respond in that way. And then in James chapter 118, again, we see basically the same understanding. So we, we, get it, we can understand what the word of truth means. Paul endures in the word of truth. He endures in the gospel. Verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by his, the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among this creature. So what's it mean? He brought us forth to what? Salvation, right? So in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So there's our phrase. So he brought us forth to what? Salvation. And what was the first fruits? The first fruits of redemption. So in other words, in the first century, gospel came out. And to this group of people, uh, James says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that's the gospel. So we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So in other words, first fruits of redemption among all those who would eventually come to faith by the word of truth. Now, granted, there can be a general understanding of the phrase, and I think this understanding is equally important as in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling, here it is, what does it say? The word of truth. Now, accurately handling has to do with making a straight cut. Now, it absolutely has to do with giving a clear presentation of the gospel. We've talked about that so many times, I think you guys know that inside and out, okay? Bad news, good news. Clear presentation of the gospel has got to include the fact that we are separate and sinful, apart from God and under a curse, 
And in no way can we redeem ourselves or make ourselves better. It's got to start there, okay? So accurately handling the word of truth has got, and if we're talking about this uh, original understanding, which is uh, the gospel, then it's a clear understanding of that. But it's not just that. Here, applied here, it means that you study the word of God enough to know that when you proclaim its meaning, it means the same thing when you find it somewhere else in the word of God. And we, I try to be careful to do that with you so that when you give you a word's meaning, I try to go somewhere else or a couple some other places, if you will, so that you can see that it means exactly the same thing. We want to make sure we're cutting a straight cut. That's what it means when you handle the word of God correctly. You're cutting a straight cut. In other words, when you're making something and you cut it all out and you try to glue it together at the end, it all fits together because you cut it correctly. See? So to use that figure of speech, you cut it all apart, you explain it, and you put it all back together, it all fits. And, you know, um, just I'll admit something here. You know, my, my wife likes to do puzzles. And uh, many of you do. I've seen pictures of you doing them, okay? And uh, I don't. I'm not a puzzle person. Uh, but I will come up and pick up a piece. It's loose. And then I'll put it someplace and I'll pretend to, like I'll do that. I'll actually make that noise. My wife, that gets her attention like right away. Like I'm trying to jam it in there, all right, in a place where it doesn't fit. And I just do that as a joke and she, it's really an old joke and not funny to her anymore. Still funny to me, you know, because I've got a junior high sense of humor. But uh, I... I try, well, I'll put a piece in my pocket and just walk away, and I'll keep it for days, and then come back, and there'll be, you know, she will fill up two-thirds of the puzzle. There'll be one place where there's no piece, and I'm like, you know, and that, that is really annoying to her, because I stick that in there, all right? But the idea, though, is the same. There's only one place where this fits, and you got to make sure that what you're doing correctly goes into that spot. So handling correctly the Word of God, see... It's having to do with making a straight cut. It has to do with the idea of continually teaching for growth and edification and sanctification in such a way that people grow and begin to look like those passages that you're desiring to teach. So you're handling correctly the Word of God. You're certainly giving out the Word correctly so that it brings forth the fruit of salvation as the Holy Spirit draws people. But then there's this broader application, I think, of understanding the phrase, which just has to do with this idea of faithfully understanding the Word of God and then explaining it and giving it out clearly. And in the Word of Truth, of course, means more than just the beginning gospel, right? It has to because Hebrews 6, verse 1 through 3 um, says this. I need Hebrews, guys. Did I jump over it? There it is. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What's the idea there? That the word of truth has to do with salvation, right? It has to do with the gospel presentation. Paul says we endure in the word of truth. So his first response is going to be making sure the gospel gets out. But it has to be broader, right? Because Hebrews 6, 1 through 3 is talking about the gospel, isn't it? It's talking about... It's talking about instructions about washing and laying out of hands and repentance for dead works and faith towards God. That's the gospel, right? And then it moves further than that, doesn't it? So it's a broader application of accurately handling the word of truth so that we can move past the presentation of the gospel every single time into maturity, see? And so 2 Timothy indicates a required proficiency in all the word of God and handling it indicates what's to be done with the truth, teaching, admonishing, exhorting reproving, correcting, instructing. And, and that helps us understand what Paul was enduring it. And it appears that the Colossians and James give us specific details of the bulk of the job as a minister. 
see? And he is commended to them uh, because he endured in the truth. So in other words, he faithfully handled the word and gave out the gospel. And, and, and that's number 16 in dealing with hardship and the ups and downs of ministry. If you want to be commended, then your life will reflect the enduring quality of faithfully handling the word of truth. This should not be a surprise to you that the Lord has elevated his word equal to his own name, that you should need to know it. And yet, I find over and over in the modern church a huge gap where there should be basic knowledge of the word of God and where to find things in the word of God and the basic understanding of the gospel and basic doctrine completely absent as if somehow this is not going to be important for the future. The word, the word is handed to us and it is the very breath of God, and it sits on our shelf or on our digital tablet, and we never touch it the entire week. How is that possible? And then Paul comes back and says, one of the ways I'm committed to you is, is enduring in the truth, the gospel presentation, and then understanding the basics of Scripture so you can edify and encourage and correct. How are you going to do the one another's if you don't know the basics of Scripture? See? Always my plea to you, be in the Word, be in the Word daily. Come here having daily been in the Word so that we're just going to do corporately what you've been doing already throughout the week. And the church changes so dramatically when that is the case. The way they deal with one another, the way they deal with things that come up, meeting immediate needs, ministries, opportunities, all kinds of things begin to change when you're in the Word each day. But it's just very basic stuff, right? We're not talking about complicated NBA plays here. We're talking about dribbling with the right hand and dribbling with the left hand. Basic layups, right and left, jump shots, pull-ups. We're not talking about complicated, let's do 1A, let's do number two. Let's, we're not talking about that. Accurately handling the word of truth, a basic knowledge of the scriptures, is a response that's required and that should not surprise us at all. But I have a suspicion that that does surprise us. And, and so when you think about accurately handling and faithfully enduring in the word of truth, it's not just reading it and keeping it to yourself, beloved. The whole idea here is handling it, see? You will be weaving the gospel message into these opportunities you have and then teaching the word and explaining it and making it clear and giving the sense. And all the time, of course, it has to start in your home, see? It starts in your home, which is why, according to 1 Timothy 3, 4, Men disqualify themselves from ministry as a deacon or as an elder if they can't even lead their own children to faith and then disciple them to walk with Jesus. See, If you can't lead your own children to faith and disciple them to walk with Jesus, then you can't do it in the church. Okay, And 1 Timothy 2.15 says that it's the primary job of the woman as well, to accurately handle the word and bring up godly children. See, So Paul says, I've been faithful to preach the gospel and rightly divide the word with you, and I've never wavered, and he was faithful to it, and here we are 2,000 years from the events of the first advent of Jesus, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his powerful resurrection that verified everything he said and the promises delivered from death, all who believe on him for salvation. Here we are, there are 2,000 years of theology and dialogue and study and scholarship, and what is it that we're still required from God to endure in? The word of truth, individually, see? All that scholarship, all that discussion, all those books that are written, marvelous. And still it falls on you to endure in the word of truth, just like all those other people who came before you, see? Your responsibility. 
And why is that? Because apart from the Word of God, people aren't sure what you have to believe. Even among the people who would claim Christ. A biblical worldview escapes a, a majority of modern Christians. How do, I, how do I pattern my life and my belief system and the way I conduct myself in this sinful world according to biblical principles? And they have no idea what to do. And yet it applies in every single area, see? People are still not sure that people are by nature wicked. It's amazing in Christian schools that you will have students stand up and say people are basically good. Over and over. And people who are older, students who are older, who have been under, should have been under teaching and had been listening and been discipled, perhaps not in their churches wherever they go, and they'll stand up and say that people are basically good. And the Bible absolutely denies that fact. Men are wicked and evil, and their heart cannot be known. The depths of the wickedness in the man's heart cannot be known. See? And, and not abiding in the word of truth, see, makes it unsure what needs to be said. You know, we, we can't just throw our arms around everybody who says they're a Christian without discernment, right? We have to have discernment, and we get that from the word of truth, see? And, and I wonder just how we could still be so confused about all this 2,000 years later, because I think the main point where the enemy assaults most viciously is the word of truth, see? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I was reading, somebody posted something on Facebook maybe yesterday or the day before about, um, about reading the word of God and how it's not a matter of that you just don't have time. It's a matter of you haven't taken a look at it and valued it as highly as the other things in your life. See, there's, there's many things that are essential for your life, and that has to be one of them, see, abiding in the word of truth. And I agree with that. So the enemy attacks viciously the word of truth because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. It's the point of salvation, so it's still required that we endure in it for the first fruit of salvation and for later for the fruit of discipleship and growth and maturity in a biblical worldview, see? And so that you can raise your children to value the Word of God and love it and endure in it and take the words and put them to work in their lives, see? Because if the only time they're hearing the Word of God is when you come to church, you have totally missed it. You have completely missed it and they are gonna throw all of that out that's got to be in the fabric of your life, beloved. So make that point. To if that's, if that's a resolution you need for the new year, you be in the Word every single day and you teach your children to do it and you live by it and teach them that it is the very, it is the very core of who you are. And you grow in your knowledge of it so that you can begin to disciple people and move past the immaturity and into maturity and the meat of the Word and be able to, to disseminate that to other people, see? We're still required to endure in it. Paul never wavered here. So quickly at the next one, the power of God. The power of God. Enduring in the truth, enduring in the power of God. Dunamis, that's the word power. We've seen that before. It's where we get our word dynamite. First place we studied that word in my time here with you was many, many years ago in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, here's our word, power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said, I'm commended to you because I endured in the power of God. And there are more than a few illustrations of, of this phrase, of course, because as I said, we, they could st- all stand alone. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this. It says, um, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, here's our word again, it is the power of God. Okay, so what's the power of God? Lord, the word of the cross. Word of the cross is the power of God. God has poured out his wrath for which we were destined on the Messiah. Same basic understanding from 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified, right? We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is, here's our word, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's not hard to figure out if we're enduring in the power of God. Uh, what is the power of God? Well, Christ crucified. It's the power of God and the wisdom of God, the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of man, and the act by which men are reconciled to God. So here, the, the power of God means to indicate, that seems to indicate that uh, the gospel, the good news that God is reconciling sinners through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, as he described in verse 21 of chapter 5. But there's another dynamic to it as well that we see in 1 Corinthians 2, 4. It says, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of, here's our word, power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul wants them to recognize that the power in his messages and the preaching in the word of truth from our last phrase, okay? So in the word of truth, of course, has to include the gospel and the first fruit of the gospel's salvation. But, and, and so abiding then in the power of God is abiding in Christ crucified and resurrected. But I think there's a broader understanding here of that, Anything that occurred, so as you begin to disseminate the word of God, which is why it's so important to abide in the word of truth, anything that occurred, lives that were changed, the moving of the spirit to praise or repent or worship or pray, any exhortation that was felt, the sting of reproof in your teaching. So when you teach and somebody feels reproved, the realization of correction when you know you were wrong and then you see what you were supposed to do and that understanding, the joy of instruction and when, you, when you're teaching and somebody is really rejoicing in that instruction and you don't know what's going on, see, you, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. But when that joy of instruction is there or the sting of repentance or sting of reproof or, or the exhortation to do something and you feel and that person feels inclined to do that, see, whatever occurred, he wanted them to know it was because of the power of God at work, see. He didn't take any credit to himself, and they could trust that response because he endured in the word of truth and in the power of God. See, the presentation of the cross. And we see this on display in this next illustration. So very, very clearly, uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, he says this. He says, for indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of, here's our word, the power of God. For we also are weak in him, and yet we live with him because of, here's our word, the power of God directed towards you. So as a result of the incarnation and the weakness of the physical body, the crucifixion was able to bring about the death of Christ. That's the idea. Because of the weakness of the body, his incarnation that John talked about last week, because of that, The crucifixion was able to bring about death. But what brought about the resurrection? The power of God brought about the resurrection, right? Life comes, change comes, sanctification comes, edification comes, maturity comes from where? It all comes from the power of God, see? And that was Paul's point. We also are weak in him, see? In this flesh, in Christ, we're weak. And he includes everybody when he says we. In the flesh, we also have weakness, but Paul says The power to live comes from whom? 
from God. The power of God is what gives us the strength to live. So as you do your ministry, you're commended to the point that you endure in the truth. And the first part of that truth has to do with the gospel presentation and that fruit is is, uh, salvation. Then you're enduring in the power of God, which means as you continue to teach, anything that's happening as a result of your teaching, and things should be, right? That is the power of God at work, see? Paul says you can trust whatever it is because I endured in the truth and in the power of God. So whatever response it was that the Holy Spirit prompted from your life as you grew or as you felt the sting of reproof or whatever it was, that was the power of God, see? Power to live comes from the Lord. So Paul was commended to them because, one, he understood the power of the gospel, so he didn't hesitate on the gospel. He didn't lessen the importance of the gospel, see? He didn't make it shallow. He didn't make it simplistic. He didn't avoid the complexities of the gospel, see? He didn't stay away from the terms that may be too deep, you know, for the average person. He preached the gospel clearly because he knew it was the power of God, and the worldly wise thought it was beneath them and foolish, but those who were being saved experienced it as the power of God, see? And he says, number two, he came in weakness, and in fear and in much trembling, but he knew where the power was and he wanted them to know where the power were for everything he was able to accomplish in their lives was found and that power for change came from God. See, so both of those things are true. Here's a man who endured all kinds of assaults and all kinds of attacks and all kinds of, of confusion about theology and he never wavered, see, and he preached the word of truth, which is the gospel, and he preached it in the power of God and he saw it reveal the power of God. And you... And this is not a surprise, okay? You are required by God. You're required. We're not making demands on God here in any of these passages. This is not name and claim it. This is submit to the master who says, I require this from you. Here's one of them. You're required by God to reveal these same things. And to the extent to which you declare the cross and to the extent to which life change occurs from the ministry that you do, which proclaims the power of God at work in you, to that extent you're committed. That's a huge responsibility, isn't it? I mean, that really kind of excludes all the kind of sitting back in the chair and just doing nothing and coming on Sunday and not having any ministry. Listen, you are way off the path where you're supposed to be, okay? And just because they're not an immediate reproof from the Lord on your life and he's not calling into question all about where you really are spiritually doesn't mean that's not going to happen, see? Course correction required, see? And if you're, if you're not, you know, if, and I, again, you're held captive but what the Lord's teaching me. It, if you're not getting anything else from this, you've got to understand, there's going to be some things where you've got to know these are part and parcel of being redeemed. And if you're not seeing some of these things in your life, then now's the time to make those decisions volitionally to follow and do them, see? And like all the rest of these responses, they will help you keep your balance in the highs and lows and ups and downs of ministry, see? And finally, the last part of verse 7. And I, I love this one. This is just so great. All of these just stand all by themselves. And I, I, I apologize that I've taken you down those paths a little bit. You're like, I, you said it wasn't going to be a three-part message, but you're making it long enough to be a three-part message. Honestly, I'm not. Okay. But verse 7 says, By the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. And that word weapons is hoplon. That's the word that refers to weapons of warfare. So we're, we're talking about warfare weapons here. This is the word he's using. But these are weapons of righteousness, warfare weapons of righteousness, see? That is, implements of warfare that will accomplish what is acceptable to God. So what, what's he saying here? Well, he's saying, I'm armed on both hands to fight on all sides with my weapons, he says. Our, 
And these weapons are the weapons of righteousness. Now, the big questions, the important questions, of course, are what are we supposed to do, right? And what are we supposed to do it with? I mean, I think those are the two questions as I read that passage, as I think, okay, what am I supposed to do? And what am I supposed to use to do it? Okay, I remember my first jobs early on with my dad. My dad built custom homes in Arizona, and I started at the bottom of the pile, you know, hod carrying for block layers, you know, rolling huge wheelbarrows of mortar for people who are laying block, uh, block and brick or, or sweeping up a building while they're laying hot tar on top and it's seeping through. I just want to make sure that doesn't hit you while you're sweeping and all that. You know, you're building, you're building up, but when he would give me a job to do, you know, or the, whoever the superintendent was under him would give me a job, he would be clear what I'm supposed to do and what tools I'm supposed to use to do it. Because that otherwise, if you don't have that type of two information, it's pretty difficult to do the job satisfactory, okay? So these are the questions that pop into our mind, and these are the illustrations to help us answer them. Here's the first one. 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, now you can right away sense that we're, we've got the same type of, of uh, subject matter here. Though we walk in the flesh, so you're born again, you're new on the inside, you're still clothed with the flesh, that's where sin finds its beachhead, all of that, okay? You're walking in a fleshly body, but you're new and ready for the kingdom inside. Okay, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So what's the implication? That you are at war, okay? So that right away might, might be a wake-up call for you. I'm not at war, you know? I, I was reading, there was an illustration sent to me from a friend of mine in Arizona. It says, uh, in order to say you're peaceful, it means you have to be able to do great damage. If you're not able to do great damage, then you're just harmless. And there's a distinction between the two. Here he says, we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 5, we are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. That's a lot. You're like, what? And first of all, he's just simply saying, you know, we're human. At this point, the word flesh has to do with being human. Okay? We're, not walk, we're not talking about walking uh, in the flesh as being sinful. We already clarified that. Okay? You're human. You're walking around in the human body. Shouldn't surprise us that we wouldn't be very effective in the spiritual realm with all of our weaknesses and all of our limitations. So we have to live as human beings, but we don't fight spiritual battles that way. In other words, we don't war against those who distort the truth and pervert the gospel and discount Jesus with human ideas and clever speeches and human wisdom and human ingenuity and sarcasm and witty stories and five-step programs and all that. We don't, we don't do the work of spirituality by using those things, okay? My own human ingenuity, my own sarcasm, witty, whatever. Okay, we don't fight for men's souls with human ingenuity. We don't use psychology and secular philosophy and politics and uh, the attraction of secular entertainment and, and a well-oiled organization to do the work of the spiritual kingdom. Okay, we make no advance on the kingdom of darkness and they gain uh, no ground. So, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to, we just saw it, right? Destroy fortresses, destroy speculations, and destroy is implied in the next one. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. 
taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, ready to punish all disobedience. Now, it's important to notice this. We're not talking about chasing demons around. Okay, again, our charismatic folk would say, oh, the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Yeah, we're supposed to take on spiritual uh, demons and do all that. No, we're not supposed to do that. It doesn't talk about that at all because this is where false teaching from charismatics always takes us. Oh, I've got a spiritual gift of demon exorcism. First of all, that's not a spiritual gift, okay? Just to be clear. Secondly, even the apostles had a hard time doing that and needed Jesus' help on a regular basis, okay? And those who were not the apostles tried that, and the seven sons of Sceva are coming to my mind, and that did not work out too well for them. So we're not talking about casting out demons, okay? We're talking about spiritual warfare, where does our spiritual warfare take place? Well, we're talking about ideas. That's what we're talking about. We're, t- we're talking about things of human philosophy and wisdom, which, which, of course, the Greeks, including those in Corinth, were very enamored. We're, we're talking about reasonings. That's logismos. That's the idea. Reasonings and rationalizations of self-content. And we're talking about intellectual pride that justify the sinner in his sin. These are the kinds of fortresses we're talking about. See, and many of you are doing battle at, in, on the professional level already papers and and you engage in this kind of thing many of you do it in the workforce you you know this is this is what we're supposed to be doing see paul endured in this because see sinners have fortified themselves in their ideologies haven't they and when you talk to somebody who's unredeemed he has fortified himself in his ideology of why he is where he is see they have invented intellectual systems that do not understand human depravity and spiritual ignorance and divine grace and they give no place for the cross which to them is foolishness and Christian warfare then is aimed at pulling down human rationale and human conjecture and sinful defiance and human justification and proud intellectualism and you're pulling all that down see because why you are enduring in the word of truth so you know what the truth is and then you're able to articulate that carefully to people that the Lord brings into your path. This can be uh, intellectual elitism with, with terms that are hard to understand and it can be with the man on the street with a pattern of life that he justifies to keep God out and both of those have fortresses of justification for the sin and both of those are fortresses that you and I are supposed to pull down. That's spiritual battle. See? That's why you have weapons. Paul says, I have weapons in the left and in the right. These are the fortresses that we storm, see? We're supposed, what, what are we supposed to do it with, okay? Well, spiritual warfare is doctrine. That's teaching. That's understanding what the Word of God says. Spiritual warfare is theological. There is a God, and He has identified Himself, and He's clear in the universe. The Bible says in, in Romans chapter 1 that all men are without excuse because... Things of God are plainly seen. So regardless of what someone may say to you, he knows or she knows inside that there is a God because the things of God are clearly seen. Now they have built up walls and they have built up fortresses and they have established positions that defend a godless worldview. But you have the weapons to take that on. See? And I may be pulling you into your Christian walk way further than you thought we were going to go today. But listen, we're not, talking about, we're not talking about complex things here, okay? It's the basics. I endured in these things and I'm committed to you, Paul says, and when we endure in them, we're committed as well, see? 
Spiritual warfare is theological. Those are, those are your weapons. They're weapons of truth, see? It has to do with content. It has to do with rightly dividing the word of truth. It has to do with confronting false ideas with what is true. Mark this full of it. I need you to mark this, okay? We don't see commendation here for ignorance. The fact that you don't know, you're not going to be commended for that, okay? You need to know, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. What? Rightly dividing the word of truth. You can know, you just have to take the time to know, see? And we don't see any commendation here for tolerance of various viewpoints either. So chuck that out the window too, okay? We don't have tolerance of various viewpoints when it has to do with the presentation of the gospel and the truth of what the scripture says, okay? There is a requirement to study and show yourself approved that you might rightly divide, to be diligent, to be approved, that you might rightly divide the word. Why? Because we've got to storm the towers of human ideas and human philosophies. And Paul says, I endured in that. I'm committed to you because I had stormed those ideas. And what's our goal according to verse 5? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Personal thought and other thought that throws itself up in defiance to what the Word of God says. We don't embrace the culture. We're here to confront the culture. It's a fortress set up against God and it has to be assaulted and it has to be destroyed and its ideologies devastated and everything taken captive to Christ. See? You have a job to do, and I do, and you, you have a part of the fortress you're supposed to assault, and I do, and, and, and all of us have this little place we're supposed to be, and we, we need to be about that, see? And that is to say, just in general, we bring sinners to the truth. It really just boils right down to very simple things. We expose their error. Fortress, their castle crumbles, and they humbly bow the knee to the truth of Christ and become obedient to him. That's what we're about, see? That's happened a few times lately. In play, with people that we have known and are very popular. All of a sudden, they've bowed the knee to Christ. And it's happened in thousands of times with people we don't know at all, but who had all these fortresses and this tower rigged up and barricades between them and justifying their sin. And people in the church, just like you and me, Lord put that person in our path and we gave them the truth. We began to tear down those things that were elevated against the knowledge of God. That's what we're about. Weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You have a shield of faith in your left hand based on the truth of the gospel so that the arguments of the world's going to give you, is gonna, they're going to give you no wound. Shield of faith. They're going to give you all kinds of things that they believe. But with a shield of faith, that, that gives you no wound. It doesn't, it doesn't gain any traction in your life, see? Or in your mind. You have the sword of the word of God for offense, the truth that takes down speculation, see? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, very clear. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What's, what's implied there? So you may not have it all on. You need it. What's for sure going to happen? Schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This just goes right together with everything we've talked about, doesn't it? Should it surprise us that we have to endure in the, in the, in the truth? 
when we're supposed to have our feet shod by the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you were able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. See, this is where you're doing battle. See? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And in Romans 13, 12, Paul writes, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on, this is our word, armor. That's our same word that we just looked at. Weapons, this is armor, the weapons of light. And Paul says, I'm commended to you because I endured with the responses to foolish thoughts and with weapons of righteousness throughout the course of my ministry. And here it is. And you have the same requirement from God. In your circle of influence, you have fortresses and strongholds all over the place. And you are commended as a minister to the extent that you take the weapons of righteousness and you throw those fortresses and strongholds down and take that foolishness captive. See. And beloved, this kind of endurance didn't only belong to Paul. It's characteristic of the spiritual heroes long before Paul. Hebrews 11 gives us a little insight, and with this we're going to close. You remember the, how the chapter ends in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, and caves, and holes in the ground. And these are, beloved, these are the heroes whose faith didn't waver, whose hope didn't die, and th though they were hoping for something they couldn't see, something far better that was saved for us who are on this side of the cross, they then became models of faith that Hebrews 12 says we are to follow, and they are crowd of witnesses testifying to the validity of faith in the most dire circumstances and calling us to live the life of faith and run with endurance the race. Let's see, They're now there cheering us on, having already done, completed their race, and they didn't even know as much as you know. See, But they didn't waver, they didn't fall back, and they had their weapons of righteousness on the left and the right, and they endured in faith, and they endured in hardship, and they endured in difficulty, and all of that. See, that's the whole point of the passage. See? And as we've seen, they endured in whatever circumstances. These are the requirements of the job description. If you're going to write one, that's what it's going to look like. See, And your job description is very similar to everyone who's ever come before you who's a believer. See, And maybe the experiences will be a little different from age to age, from place to place but the job requirements are the same. And we don't get to write it ourselves. They're modeled for us. They're written for us. And these are non-negotiables. 
And there's no premium on ignorance. And there's no premium on tolerance. And there's no premium on waffling. There's no commendation for any of those things. Troubles and persecutions on the one hand. Tremendous lofty expectations by God on the other hand. Enduring in them. Such was Paul's example that we're to follow. In the highs and lows of ministry, these things will help us keep our balance. And the more our responses look like this, see, the more assured we are of our sanctification, which assures us of our salvation. See. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to get into uh, those paradoxes, those ironies of ministry. Paul's going to endure in them uh, because when you're doing these kinds of things, being faithful to it, and have a wide variety of responses, ones that don't seem appropriate and ones that are appropriate, and they'll both be there together. And Paul says, don't lose heart if it's, that's how it is. And so we're going to look at that next time, Lord willing, and uh, begin continue to keep our, our track through this wonderful passage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you today for a great opportunity to be together. Thank you for the, the, the bond we have in Christ. Thank you for the, the dearness of our folks here to me, for the joy it is to be working together with them for the joy it is to fellowship with them for the fun we have uh, that you give us through our bond in Christ together apart from the works of the ministry. Thank you for each of their, their influence that you've given them uh, where they have a weapon in their left and the right ready to throw down every, every high fortress and, and uh, uh, all the barricades built up that insulate people from God's truth and taking every thought captive. Lord, I pray that they'll be in the word each day, abiding in truth, uh, abiding in the gospel, knowing what the word says, able to apply what it says. So Father, I pray that you'll help us be that kind of church, help us to grow each of us in these areas where we find by your Holy Spirit today that we perhaps are lacking a little bit. As we resolve to do it, I pray that you'll help us to follow through with those volitional responses in order to make that uh, the case in our life. Thank you for the ministry that's going to occur in an hour or so uh, out in Rustburg. I pray that you'll take each of the tracks. I pray that you will open up the mind of those who read them, that you'll compel them, Father, draw them by your Holy Spirit to read them, that they might come to the knowledge of faith and respond. In that first fruit of salvation, and then they'll grow. And Father, they'll begin to look more like Jesus as our community begins to be conformed uh, through one-to-one witnessing. So Father, as we do these things, protect us as we travel and all that. Help us to have a winsome, uh, just a light-hearted way about us. We might, they might sense the joy that's in our own heart, the joy of the season, joy of our future, and our interaction with them. Pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. All God's people said, amen.